The big change in media in our lifetime has been the switch from one to many media, which is the operative principle from the printing press onward, to many to many media, many producers for many consumers. It's amazing in 2022 to see people who really should know better, journalists, people writing about media, talk about clickbait. The connection between clicks and revenue uh, was really more of a product of the, the late 2000s, early 2010s. I mean, if you live in a, if you live in an actual oral culture, you know, this culture without writing, you live in a world where what is real is highly socially determined, where changes in narratives, cha changes in the changes in the stories become changes to reality very quickly. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with John Esconis, a professor at the Catholic University of America and writer in Compact, The New Atlantis, and many more. His writing is fascinating and covers from everywhere from media to technology to political theory, so a perfect guest for the show. However, our first interview was cut a bit short, which is why you're getting this as a bonus episode. Hopefully, this is just the beginning, and we'll have a very, very long episode with, uh, with John in the future. As always, the best thing you can do it, to support the show is to share it and tell a friend. Either in person or on social media, there's a recommendation which only you can give, and some people you know who would really benefit from listening to the show. And of course, you'd help us too. You can also subscribe for more shows. This show usually comes out on Mondays. And the next episode that you'll be hearing is also going to be next Monday. And that'll be an exciting one, too. Without further ado, here's John Esconis. Hypocrisy. Overrated or underrated? Underrated. Interesting. So do you think people are more or less aware of how the media ecosystem functions today than they were 20 years ago? I think that's a great question. I think... Uh... I think less aware. I think I think it's actually somewhat undeniable. Um, I think you know, twenty years ago, the you know, if it, twenty years ago, the people who were in the media business had lived through two or three really substantial transitions in media in their lifetimes. You know, from radio to uh, you know, movies and radio and newspapers to television, and then you know, burgeoning into the internet. Uh, and so there was aware there's an awareness about that. The other thing is that I think that the kind of the business model of news media in that period was relatively transparent, not transparent in the sense of obvious how uh, advertising was was manipulating content in any given in a given case, but people knew how people understood how how it made money. One of the surprising things today is that because we live in this kind of doubly mediated environment where you have other various kinds of content forms that are then mediated again by the internet. People are very confused about the operations of media. People are confused about media business models. Like just here's a clear example. It's amazing in 2022 to see people who really should know better journalists, people writing about media talk about clickbait and um, the power of, you know, of clicks, but really that's that the connection between clicks and revenue uh, it was really more of a product of the the late 2000s, early 2010s, when there was a, when the when when web based advertising was making more money, and where where journalistic outfits thought that that was where money was going to be made. Whereas today, everyone knows it's about subscribers. 
And so, you know, people in the newsroom at like New York Times are looking at different analytics than just how many people clicked on this. Um, so that's one small example of, of the ways in which actually we've gotten worse in thinking about media and, and the evolution of media. Right. So one critical variable here that we're focusing on is like concentration, right? So uh, before things were highly dispersed. So in order to get a good audience, even to get to your diehard fans, you would have to basically have the large mass media reach first. Whereas now you can actually cast the narrow net and the narrow net will actually land on something quite very, um, quite valuable. Is that, yeah, is that right? I think that's right. So the, I mean, the, the big change in media in our lifetime has been the switch from one to many media, which is the operative principle from the printing press onward, to many to many media, many producers for many consumers. Um, and there's, you know, the, the internet is sort of the shorthand way of, of explaining this difference, but there, you know, I think there have been different, different internet technologies have enabled different parts of this switch. One of the most important has been that the search cost, both for producers trying to find would-be consumers and for consumers trying to find content that they, they want to consume, the search costs have plummeted. And so that's enabled uh, more and more niche producers to be successful. Right. And this is this is kind of interesting, right? Because there are people nowadays who, compl- who uh, not necessarily complain, but at least talk about the Pareto distribution of people who are getting attention and you know sometimes i'll just ask them like what do you think the distribution was 20 years ago right because i i would say that it was a much actually much steeper curve uh 20 years ago in terms of who who was getting attention because there was so much that was reliant on distribution power uh, as opposed to now so it's strange because there is simultaneously i think a uh, an aggregator where like the, the kind of meta institutions are much more powerful, right? Google, Facebook are much more powerful than any news station or newspaper was 50 years ago. But at the same time, there is a sort of democratization, right? Where, where there is yes. an increasingly long tail. So where is the well, country, right? Where- yeah, so I think, I think one way to understand, I think just, I want to complicate what you're saying in one way, which is that what yes, the internet please. has done is it's it's hollowed out the middle's the wrong word it used to be that um loyalty and reach there's always been a there's always been a trade off between loyalty and reach right there's all there's always been you know people who had a small audience but an extremely loyal audience and people with large audiences that were not that loyal but what the internet has done is it has read it has blown out the curve it's pushed those out further further apart so for example you know, when um, when Gangnam Style goes viral several years ago, it reaches more people than any piece of music ever could have reached uh, before the Internet. Right. So, you know, m- m- crazy it is to say more people probably listened to Gangnam Style than even like Michael Jackson's Thriller or any of the biggest uh, albums, biggest singles of all time previously. However. Because it's a global audience, right? It's it's instantly global, uh, and uh, it tr- you know travels through uh, social networks, so it, it reaches if it's if it's successful, it reaches everything. Um, however, you know the revenue that I forget his name. I'm, I'm not into K-pop. The, yeah, Psy, of course. The revenue that Psy saw from Gangnam Style, well, substantial, was much smaller than the revenue that Michael Jackson would have seen from 
uh, either any of his singles or, of course, any of his albums, right? Because the 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 loyalty, if you want to use that word, for Gangnam Style was was extremely shallow. People liked the song. They watched the song. You could sell ads based on the song. Probably sold a, you know, sold a decent number of singles, more than almost anyone else sells today. Um, so at the very at the very upper reaches of this kind of search pattern, you have huge audience, but very little loyalty, right? Um, on the on, on the flip side, you have people. Uh, you know, you can you can tour with a small band, and you can build up a kind of national audience, and you won't you won't appear on any of the streaming charts, but you can actually make a living uh, just selling your sell. If you have a loyal audience. You can sell to that loyal audience, right? Um, so I mean, this, this has been a rad- this is a radical change in how media operated, right? Because a lot of the revenue from media came from people who um, were loyal enough to to purchase media, uh, purchase magazines, purchase books, purchase albums, um, but we're still part of the kind of mass culture. So what we have now is you have a you have a you have a, a much much larger than ever before possible mass culture with no loyalty attached to it. And then you also have the world of subscriptions and more niche audiences, which is where you can actually build loyalty and build revenue. See, this is something where where I really wish I was older and I really wish I lived through it because here's the question I have. Was this actually a cultural change that affected the mass public? Or was it a kind of strategic change. Like this is something this is something that I just hear about when I hear people speaking of the old either the old Hollywood or the old uh, music industry was that actually like as much as there was a sort of industry machine, it was not a very kind of mathematically or technologically sophisticated machine. They did not they I don't think would have been able to see a kind of a kind of Pareto distribution without it being pointed out to them and certainly didn't even attempt the same types of tactics. Right. So, so is this an evolution in just, it's become easier for people who are in the know and for people who are actually creating to first of all, get this knowledge for themselves and second of all, to implement it, or is it a change in how useful that knowledge actually is? Right. Or, or like if, if it's both then like, what is the relative weight of those things? So, what I what you have here basically is these old, you know, the old media industries being, um, you know, the lunch being eaten by much more dynamic um, internet companies, which change who pays the search cost, so to speak, lower the search cost, and then change who pays it. Right. So, for example, um, you know, one of the ways that Sorry, just define search cost. Yeah. So finding. Finding and marketing, in this case, finding and marketing new content producers that are going to be appealing to lots of people, mm-hmm. right? So that used to that used to be a cost that was internalized by media companies, right? It was internalized by people who are producing movies, internalized by people who are finding and booking and right, contracting new musical acts, um, who are publishing books, right? And what's happened now is that, and, and the analytics that they had were not very good, right? This is this was a very um, this is a very impressionistic industry. It was an industry driven by, by people sort of feel for where attitudes and tastes were going, right? And it got it got things wrong a lot of the time. But it also meant that because search was bad, they had to place lots of small bets on things that, um, that in some cases ended up being very successful, 
So a good, good example is like after um, at a, after Nirvana blew up in the early 1990s, all of these out of the kind of uh, Seattle like grunge uh, punk scene is my understanding. I'm not like a I'm not a huge Nirvana fan. Um, but what happened was all of these album executives like descended on Seattle and started handing out co- recording contracts to all of these bands that were just mm. happening part of the scene. Right. And it meant that it injected a huge amount of vitality into music and this is this is one of the reasons why before the internet you have these waves of new kinds of music and new musical fads right you have you know you go from like jazz you have jazz and country and rock and roll and uh, metal and uh you know punk and electronica and hip-hop and you have and, and within those you have you have waves and waves of new kinds of music right what that is is you know, the kind of industry placing collective bets on uh, new talent that's developing. And that's actually driving the generation of new culture. So what we have now is cultural stasis driven by the fact that you you rely on analytics rather than having to make all of these sort of smaller bets, right? And even if you do want to make small bets, you don't do that based on a feeling or a vibe. You do that based on, you know, how many hits does their SoundCloud have? How many, you know, how big are they on YouTube? So, I mean, one proof of this, and actually um, the pop critic Ted Joya has written about this, I think better than anyone else, is that for like three or four years running, Ed Sheeran's The Shape of You from 2017 has been the most popular pop song. I mean, you poll people like, what was your favorite song this year? That's unheard of in the history of modern popular music. Um, And it's driven by the fact that we're all listening. We're not tuning to the radio. We're not buying new music. We're primarily kind of existing within youtube spotify amazon music apple music whatever your your preferences so it has been a huge huge shift in how culture is consumed and produced see that's that's so interesting because what you described there with people going to the scene flooding it with money that that sounds a lot like venture capital right that's the first thing that i thought of it's like oh, oh yep. it's it's my friends in venture capital it's like it, it's it's all of the i mean you can see this in the in the fattiness as well right like i mean as much value no matter how much value you think that cryptocurrencies have right they probably did not have as much value as as the amount of money that was just thrown onto that scene completely yep. in in Absolutely. say 2020s 2021 Right. And so you still have this kind of behavior, right? Maybe it's that actually like the talent, the, the, the talent seekers, the uh, people who are trying to find these scenes are uh, are just moving to near grounds. Or actually, we see this in our own in our own lives, right? We have uh, we go to these uh, tech conferences, we go to these political conferences, and that in, in a way is also the same kind of behavior, right? And it seems like just doing just going by algorithm, right? You can't really do, we haven't really been able to do startups by algorithm or to do, you know, new political parties by algorithm or anything like that, right? So, so, so actually maybe that's that's a good question to ask. Why is that? Why haven't we adapted the same kind of shift for, for these other areas? Well, I, a little black pill on this would be that it hasn't really worked for art either. What you mm, have here right. is a kind of, I think we're exist, we, right now we are in the kind of like, so after, after, to use a morbid analogy, after you're exposed to a huge amount of radiation, um, if it doesn't kill you right away, there's a period in which you basically get healthy. Like it doesn't kill your cells. What it does kill is it kills your bone marrow. 
And so there's this like period where you're you feel fine bodily, but actually your bone marrow, which produces red blood cells, which you need to live, is dying. And when it dies, eventually you'll die, you know, within a matter of weeks, right? I sort of feel like that's where we are as, as, in terms of our popular culture, artistic culture, is that we're kind of in the shadow of this change. And we have now we have this kind of corpus of old music that's great old music um, that, that is allowing us to subsist. We have some new music, but we aren't really producing um, new artists the way that we used to. We're not really um, fostering musical ecosystems the way that we used to. And so we're not yet in a kind of equilibrium. Um, that would be my kind of my take on that question. Um, I do think, and so this is, you know, just for your, your listeners, this conversation is, ba- is based in part on a series I'm writing for the New Atlantis called Reality a Postmortem, which is trying to trace all of the kinds of effects that this major shift in media is having on our society. And I argue that we're we're exiting an era of consensus society of mass culture, and we're entering an era of alternative realities and a kind of fragmented sense of culture and sense of the world. But I think, I mean, I guess I'm an optimist in the sense that I think I think it'll be okay. I think we'll develop new institutions, new ways of of living together. Um, so, uh, I'm actually an optimist when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, and I'll have an intro uh, summarizing all of that stuff. I think before before they hear you, or I, I mean, aside from the aside from the clips at the beginning, before they hear the full conversation, they'll they'll have a general idea of who you are. But actually, this is something I want to ask about uh, because I don't actually know what the new Atlantis is. Like, obviously, I know it's like a it's like a web publication, but like, what what does it do? What 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 is the point of the new Atlantis? So it's actually not just a web publication. It's uh, it is a print magazine, which is very beautiful. Um, it is a a, mag- a journal of society, uh, you know, science, culture, and politics. Um, and it was started by uh, Yuval Levin uh, almost twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, I think, um, aiming to provide a space for um, humanistic conversations about science and technology. Right. So, um, you know, and, and the issue, you know, there's a huge breadth of issues the magazines covered, ranging from this kind of media criticism to uh, debates about space exploration to bioethics and genetic engineering. Um, it, you know, the new Atlantis was, I think, probably, I think, the best voice throughout the COVID-19 pandemic from the very beginning, kind of finding a middle ground between brainless, you know, I am the science Anthony Fauci stuff and, uh, you know, reactionary, not actually uh, scientifically sound uh, responses on the on, on the other on the other direction. Um, so, yeah, that, that's sort of what New Atlantis is about. How do we actually apply serious political thinking, social thinking to the meaning of science? Why is it called the New Atlantis? Well, it's a it's a reference to Francis Bacon's uh, book, The New Atlantis which is where he, he sort of posited a society. It's, it's Francis Bacon's take on or alternative to Utopia, the Thomas More uh, book. Uh, and in it, he kind of lays out what a society structured around scientific thinking and exploration would look like. Uh, do you want to, do you want to go on? I want well, to yeah, well, I mean, he, that, yeah. so, I mean, the, so the, the, it's, it's a kind of classic 17th century style, um, 
travel utopia, travelogue utopia. I mean, I think the, the best example, most well-known example might be something like Gulliver's Travels. I don't know if you've ever read that. Right. And of course, yeah. this leads into like H.G. Wells and science fiction. So, I mean, basically, you know, this is like proto-science fiction is how I think you can understand this this genre of, of writing. Um, and so it's this traveler uh, in the, who uh, stumbles upon um, this island continent paradise uh the the new atlantis and uh, the the book is basically a description of his travels on this island continent and his description of the, of the society there so you know just as you know marco polo write a travelogue about what life was like in china you had this you had the, these the genre of descriptions of fictional societies but of course those descriptions were aimed at some kind of political or social criticism for their own society right and I think the key the key thing the book is remembered for is his description of um, Solomon's house, which was this scientific institution in this society. And it was Frank Bacon's description of how they conducted experiments, how they managed uh, scientific discovery, how those scientific discoveries were integrated into their society um, through, you know, to leading to kind of technological dynamism. And some people have conjectured, well, you know, there's, there's an argument that the Royal Society, which, of course, is sort of this foundational scientific society that, you know, Sir Isaac Newton was the president, uh, the president of for a long time, um, that it was sort of based on this description of Solomon's house. Hmm. How weird are you? How weird am I? Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, I'm in like Orthodox Orthodox Christian, you know, cisgender, white, male, father of four. Oh, come uh, on. So I'm extremely what's weird. The weirdest, and, and, what's the weirdest and, thing in, in you the 21st century that, No, in the 21st century, that's extremely weird. What's the weirdest thing I believe? I believe that Jesus Christ resurrected bodily from the dead. That's the weirdest yeah. thing I believe. I think that that's like a majority opinion still, right? No, I don't like, think so. I mean, Peter Thiel said the Orthodox Christians are the most heterodox thinkers today. Hmm. That, that does seem like something that does seem like something Teal would say. That, that also reminds me a lot of Ross Douthat, right? right? Um, uh, what is reality? Ah, uh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> so reality is the name we give to uh, our consciousness of our experience of the world, right? The world is it is it shows up to us, right? It's not just the thing as itself. It's 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 how the world actually shows up to us. So the the world shows up to us already full of meaning, right? When I walk into my office, I don't just see flat objects of you know in existing in three dimensional space time. I see a mug, a computer, um, a chair. Things that already have a kind of significance and a function for me, right? That's what reality is, right? So it's a combination both of sort of sensory input and also of the of the meaning that you assign to that sensory input right that's yes. what you mean yes okay so uh one of your or many of your essays i should say deal with uh what you say uh you said earlier reality of post-mortem right well what are what are we uh obviously we still have uh senses we still have sensory input we still have some kind of meaning. Why? Why are we writing a postmortem for reality, or why are you writing a postmortem for reality? Well, so our our the most important things in our reality are not 
those items which are most readily described by some kind of physical sensory experience, right? They are. Um, I don't think that's trivial, but go on. Well, it's not trivial. No, I'm not saying it's trivial, but um, you know, the, the most important question, the things that we 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 wrestle with existentially, things we wrestle with socially, tend to be things about relationships, functions, meaning, purposes, uh, narratives, and um, we in the 20th century, especially in the late 20th century, we actually lived in a in a kind of reality bubble, right? We lived in a bubble where so for most of history, realities were very locally produced, right? You had your you had your village, your community, your faith, um, and when you travel to another village, uh, another community, another faith, and, you know, and and each you know each village, each town might have their own gods that they worship. Um, your sense of reality should have shifted as well, embedded within a broader culture, right? The the world in which our sense of reality was deeply shaped by mass media um, institutions and, and large in large mass national institutions was really uh, less than 100 years. Um, and now we are whiplashing out of that world into a world in which um, our encounter with reality is mediated by an internet which is built around us, right? My feeds, my recommendations, what I see about the world through the internet is catered in a way and I or, or curated and I often, you know, and I participate in that. And so our sense of a shared reality is rapidly falling away. Or, okay, so you have three, let's say we divide the world into three eras. We have, or, or three in the modern world, the, the semi, the post-war world, let's say, into three eras, right? We had, um, I don't know, do you, do you consider like World War One like print to be the age of mass media already? Yes, no, it certainly is a part okay. of the world of mass media. I mean, I think it intensifies... Um, in an interesting way when you get radio and television, but um, we're beginning to see, you know, print, yes, print is a mass medium enterprise. Right. So let's go, let's go a bit before that. And uh, let's say like from civilizational history. Okay. Uh, and you know, I'm not a historian, but let's say you have, you divide it into three areas. You have the kind of pre-mass media era, the mass media era, and then this kind of like internet era or decentralized era. Right. Uh Rank these in the order of uh, rank these in the order of how strong the bonds formed during them are. How strong bonds, uh, right? What do you mean the bonds? Bonds, bonds between, between whom? Between bonds people? between people. Just there's in no general. doubt. There's no doubt. Uh, the oral culture. I mean, if you live in a, if you live in an actual oral culture, in other words, a culture without writing, um, you live in a world where what is real is highly socially determined. Where changes in narratives, change, changes in the, um, in this case, almost literally poems in the stories that you tell that are your way of transmitting knowledge, changes in those stories become changes to, you know, that become become uh, reality very quickly. So, for example, there's a good story, um, and, and and that's not a bad thing. There's a point to that. It, it fosters a huge sense of social cohesion. But it means you can't really have an identity. You can't really have an intellectual practice outside of your community, right? I mean, this is the reason why Socrates is put to death, right? I mean, that's, the Athens of Socrates isn't is not a truly oral society. They had writing, but it's 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 very it's only a few generations removed from a, a purely oral society. And so, you know, what's what is the great crime that Socrates commits? 
uh, he's corrupting the youth of Athens, and he's corrupting the youth of Athens by casting doubt on the authenticity of the poetic epics, right? That's mm. specifically the thing that he is called out for and tried and, and executed for. Um, so there's no doubt that that fosters a very, very strong sense of community uh, and a shared sense of reality. It just isn't necessarily, you know, I think there's a good reason why we love that behind. And how about between the mass media era and the, the current era? Yeah, so I think that's a good question. Um, we're, I mean, we're, we are only beginning to figure this out, but it does definitely seem that, look, in the, in the mass media era, there was a broad, there were broadly shared sense, there was a broadly shared sense of the narrative of, of, of what's real, but it was also somewhat shallow, right? And there was a fair amount of, of disagreement. I mean, I think you can look at um, some of, you know, the kind of television sh- debate format television shows from the 60s until about the 2000s. They've, they've basically gone extinct since the internet, which is interesting to think about. And, you, you know, you have substantive disagreements about serious public issues. Um, the internet has already shown us that these the subscription-based reality communities um, foster very intense, a very intense sense of what's real and true among qu- quite a small amount of people, uh, and c- it can occur very quickly, right? So the sense of what is real in the anti-vax community, in the, you know, lo- like the kind of like COVID extremist community, in the, um, I don't know, the kind of you know, based you right, and the you know you could you could yeah you could, you could you could we could go on listing these kinds of communities. It's an extremely powerful, you know. In, in some ways, it's a recovery of something of the kind of in communal intensity of the oral culture, but mediated through a print, often through a print medium. Right. I'm not sure if you know uh, local distance on Twitter. Yeah, you know, I know uh, him. I know who he is. Yeah, I I think I I heard him speaking about something familiar or something similar on Benjamin Boyce's show as well. Maybe I can find that on the on the podcast. Uh, but yeah, he was speaking about this this kind of oral oral culture, a return to oral culture, uh, but also keeping like the worst ways of the written culture, right? Like Twitter is sort of like uh, Twitter is sort of like a oral culture in, tr- in the terms of how people kind of react yes, and, the, yes. and the need to like respond and like the current thing. Right. But it's also permanent. It's also like yep. a, a permanent record unless you go and delete it yourself. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, Twitter functions more like an oral I'll culture. This is all, this is all local. Yeah. Yeah. No, t- Twitter definitely functions more like an oral culture, but as you said, with this weird, I mean, th- th- what's distinctive about digital, if you want to talk about digital media, the thing that's most distinctive about them is the kind of instantaneity of recall. That's what's really mm, unique. Yes. Um, and that's also, by the way, a huge reversal from ma- the mass media era and the broadcast era. It's, you know, I think uh, Chuck Klosterman has this great book, the nineties, which I recommend to you, especially if you want to think about what was it like before the internet and the hardest thing to, to remember the hardest thing to appreciate is that as late as the early 2000s you could talk on television and truly believe that no one would ever hear what you said again why because even if there were archives they were highly inaccessible um you know when the daily show with john stewart was kind of getting going cnn and and nbc and these news uh companies would send out archive the only way you could get archival footage was through the mail you had to like mail them a check and then they would mail you a, a tape of, you know, a, te- a show. And so you had to be highly motivated to, you know, but, but then, you know, in 1999, the TiVo comes to market 
And the, the uh, you know, starting with John Stewart and The Daily Show, you begin to digitally record television. And then it, that massively changes people's incentives for how they how that medium operated, which is right. a story I tell in my new essay in The New Lannis. Yes, and my readers should definitely check that out, or my listeners in this case. Uh, it's it's pretty funny because I think that is kind of how FOIA requests still work today, right? Like they'll give uh-huh. you like USBs and stuff, but but they they're not like at least I'm pretty sure maybe it varies from case to case from but from the people I've talked about, uh, it, hopefully one of them is coming on the show as well. Uh, the process of FOIA requests is still sort of this relic, and I think that's interesting because it is it is actually crucial and underused in my opinion. Yeah, um, and the FOIA request process is, is, you know, central to anybody who works on government records. Um, but of course, so, so this is an interesting example, right? So I've actually, you know, gone through this process myself. Um, FOIA requests are painful when you talk about pay, in the world of paper records, but they're relatively straightforward because there either is a record or there isn't a record. Whereas actually FOIA requests uh, for more recent records are actually much more difficult. Because if a file exists, even if in principle a file ought to be FOIA-able, if it exists on somebody's hard drive and it's not pro- in the proper place in the network, etc., then it might be impossible to find. In, in a weird way, my, I'm a military um, historian, or I study the military by that's my day job, um, and one of the remarkable things is that our more recent wars, like Af- Iraq and Afghanistan, are going to be far, are, even though we produce far more data during those wars, our historical record of those wars is actually going to be much worse, I think, than uh, than World War II or the Vietnam War, because um, digital media encourages us to save everything, but not save it in a thoughtful way. That's so all; it's massively unorganized data. I don't know. This seems like well, yeah, like encourage is the right word here, right? Because I don't think written records like necessarily encourage you to store them in a responsible way, right? Like I have plenty of, uh, I don't know, paper, like the, the podcast prep that I did here is on a piece of paper, right? Next year, I might've lost the notebook by then. I'll still have the podcast, but I'll have lost the notebook, right? So I, I don't think like paper records are inherently, um, inherently, you know, uh, encouraging of these good practices. It's just that you, you kind of need to go in there and like force these guys to actually hold, put their records and organize them in a responsible way. And so I think I, that's I, largely I what they did with paper actually. records, right? I disagree okay, with you, on. actually. I disagree with you because, I mean, this is a good example of how to think about a medium, right? A medium is not just the uh, – this is all from Marshall McLuhan. Uh, it's not just the effect of like, you know, having paper and the physical properties of paper. It's also the social systems that are required and that, that evolved to make the most of that um, of that medium, right? And so – Paper enables you to, in principle, run, uh, you know, very large bureaucracies, right? The, the term For bureaucracy sure. comes from, you know, rule by desk. Uh, in Weber's definition of bureaucracy, he defines it in terms of uh, the files and the moving of the files, you know, file, whether it's, you know, military plans or, you know, file personnel files at a DMV or whatever. Um, moving the files from desk to desk in a kind of orderly process is like the definition of a bureaucracy. What that means is, though, is that in yes, order the, to do anything with rules paper, which it enables, yes, right? the, the only way to do anything with paper is if you have a process of filing and placing discrete pieces of paper the proper way, right? So what that creates is this like evolutionary dynamic where the institutions that win and the countries that win are the countries that 
are skilled at doing, you know, doing the paperwork the right way, so to speak, right? If you don't do the paperwork the right way, you cannot have an army good enough to sustain your country into like, you know, the mid 20th century. So there is actually this really strong incentive pressure that the medium itself creates, right? Well, in the case of digital, especially once we have decent search, that all goes away. I haven't seen this firsthand, but I, I was reading, you know, some fellow educators talking about um, how none of their students know how the computer file system works. Like they literally don't know; they don't use full file, folders and files, um, and they don't really understand how that works. And the reason is, is they just dump everything into their G drive or into, you know, you know, a handful of folders, and then then they search. They search for whatever they need. And search is are, so are good. These, uh, are these college students? These are college students. Yeah, these are college oh students. Oh my goodness! Now, they're not in computer science. Like if you if you're doing computer science, there are, you know, there are, you will learn this at some point if you are doing certain things. Like you can't do computer science if you don't know how to write like file paths or whatever. Even then, actually, but, yeah, you have you have a bit of this. Uh, I have a friend who is TAing for an introductory computer science uh, science course, and like even then. Right, you you'll have to teach all these students these things. Like you'll be in you'll be at at this point at a, at quite a prestigious uh, university, and, and you still not know how to like how to like navigate like the Linux file system, right? So yeah, so exactly. I think this actually does extend to computer science students. But sorry, go on. Well, no, yeah, it, it very well might. You know, you're you're not wrong. It very well might extend even to computer science students. Whereas you know, in contrast, for example, if you wanted to keep for professional reasons. Uh, if you wanted to, um, say, you know, keep track, keep, keep tabs with people in your professional network, right? 20 years ago, that meant you had to keep some kind of written record of your contacts, right? It had to, either in a notebook or in a technology like the Rolodex, like which is actually a physical little, you know, tabletop filing system, right? Right. It, it's now, like for my just, right? It's like that? it's like this keychain or like these, these like links, right? That you attach to pieces of paper and you can flip the papers together and, and that organizes all of the people you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, part of part of the practice of becoming a professional in the kind of in this culture, in that that culture which we extended literally until the invention of really the smartphone, I would argue. You it encourages a certain set of practices and ways of organizing the world. And those have all radically gone. Like I've never owned a Rolodex or anything like it. I've never used one. Um, I keep my, you know, I have contacts on my phone or whatever, for better or for worse. Um, radically different. So, or, or, you know, and even in a more, like if I was a salesperson, I wouldn't use a Rolodex. I'd use a CMS, uh, like Salesforce. Um, so, and, and, that, and that kind of practice, by the way, that kind of practice had evolved over at least to a 200-year period of keeping those kinds of records. And now that, that practice has completely gone away. Right. And, and it kind of points to, I think this is something that the software world has has learned the, the hard way, is, is that limitations are not always uh, bad, right? Limitations that, this is like the big thing now, you want more limitations on your programming languages, not less. You want to force people into tighter, basically, methods of behavior and coding. And you might ask, like, why, why is that, right? And I think that kind of McLuhan, view of it gives a very good, very good guiding direction is that these, these limits, these, these limits shape the way that that actually is used and more limits might not actually be a bad thing. Right. Yep. 
so so on the issue or on the topic of limits uh are limits worth respecting are limits worth respecting well i mean it depends on which limits mm, good question uh, <laughs> what what is conservatism okay so you're yeah so uh, George, George, the philosopher George Grant described conservatism as a uh, an ideologically um, how would he say a uh, sorry a th- yeah a th- basically a theoretically incoherent position in a technological society, and I think he's basically right about that. I mean, conservatism emerged as an attempt to justify and and defend the existing social order. Again, after the rise of revolutionary ideologies, after you know revolutionary liberalism in 1789, and then of course the great revolutionary movements in the 19th century, including you know socialism and communism, these basically sought to overthrow the existing patchwork of traditions and social order and laws and and ways of organizing society and culture um, because it was you know not conducive to human flourishing or 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 health or progress. This is where you have a belief in kind of capital P progress. And conservatism defended against that. Um, and it did a reasonably good job defending against the kind of ideological component. But it completely missed the material transformation of society through technology to the point where, just like the Rolodex, very many of these institu- these traditions have almost gone extinct or have gone extinct. Um, and so I argue in a recent essay in Compact Magazine, that what we need is um, to abandon this project of conservatism and instead actually decide, take a stance on what is good for humans and build technologies that enable us to live the good life. Is Tyler Cowen a conservative? I don't know what Tyler Cowen is. I think he's a very, uh, I think he's someone who keeps his real thoughts and things close to, close to his chest. Um, he's a conservative in a certain sense. I mean, everyone most people are conservative in one sense or another. I don't think he certainly does not believe in revolutionary change in society, or at least he does not believe in revolutionary change via um, a top-down program of social reorganization. He does believe in revolutionary change through technology and, and um, market power. Uh, so, to that extent, no, I don't think he is a conservative. Mm. So, in your uh, in your piece, to compact. This is like kind of like excellent i think it's like the, the excellent kind of like archetype of a just asking questions uh <laughs> just asking questions piece right and i say this in a very positive way i think it was an excellent piece uh it was very interesting because the people who i thought would be most annoyed by this really liked it and i mean they had some they had some kind of bad takes as well uh which maybe we'll talk about in part two but uh I don't know. The, the kind of brilliance of the just asking questions piece is that you don't have to answer this question. So you can pass on the question if you'd like. But uh, what do you want the reaction to your piece to be? Well, I want people to, I want people across the, the broad political spectrum, especially on the kind of right of center, to ask themselves what it means to live in a technological society and whether they're, what, what their preferred political program implies about its underlying technological basis what and if you don't have an answer to that te- question if you don't have an answer to the question it means you're not a serious political program what does it mean to live in a technological society i mean i, I think of a, a society in which um we are accustomed to the routine change of our institutions 
around new tools that we develop uh, to at such a speed that uh, traditions and norms and cultures around those tools have a difficult time catching up or keeping up with those new developments. And what implications does it have to your political program? Well, it means if, if, you, if you have a political program that relies on some, uh, some reservoir of tradition, of virtue, of, uh, of you know, sentiment for a particular place or nation or whatnot, um, without paying attention to whether that is being eroded by, potentially eroded by technological change, then you, know, that, that, then you don't have a serious program. So whatever program, whether it's like post-liberal integralism or neo-reaction or, you know, market, you know, moderate market conservatism or libertarianism or whatever, you have to ask yourself, are the, are the institutions and are the virtues that are required for my program to succeed sustainable uh, in the face of technological development? Uh, and, or to maybe a little bit more precise, what kinds of technological development uh, uh, sustain and foster those institutions and virtues and which kinds deteriorate them. So you listed three ideologies there, um, uh, center-right liber- libertarianism, integralism, and neo-reaction. Uh, which, which one of these, or, or let's rank them again, rank them from, from uh, most likely to survive in the current technological environment to least likely. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to be a little controversial here. So I'll say least likely is center-right libertarianism. Um, and if you want to understand why, I mean, I think Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, is a, makes a version of the argument, a sociological version of the argument. Um, second, in the middle somewhere, it would be something like neo-reaction. And I think, uh, <laughs> I'm not an integralist, by the way, but I think integralism uh, as a take or as a program uh, is in some ways the most compatible with where we're heading if only if 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 only you look at birth rates now the question then becomes which integralism i'm not sure catholic integralism is compatible but mormon integralism might be uh maybe we need to be talking about amish integralism if you look at underlying <laughs> fertility rates In, indeed this is the this is the kind of ritual or sorry the the religious will inherit the earth's argument right yes eric hoffman among other the show yeah 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 that's I, only I one part that's... of it of course it's only one part of it but you know, as a cheeky response to a cheeky question. Yeah, I, I wasn't planning on expanding more on this, but I do want to bring back to to the original um, A Thousand True Fans, uh, right? We were talking about how this media dynamic changed to finding your truest fans. I think I think integralism has the, the capability to find a lot of really deep, true, and, and meaningful, genuinely meaningful fans. Yes, well, and... and... Well, one thing we haven't yet figured out is how our political system is going to interact with um, uh, how our political system will interact with this change in how you foster loyalty and um, excitement and uh, political power. We're only at the very beginning of figuring that out. Right. Do you think people who are stronger at communicating in propositional truths are at an advantage or disadvantage in this environment? Not in the communications environment, but in the political environment as a whole. Well, I certainly, you know, it's, it's, it's a question, I, once, I'm tempted to reply that, that the propositional truth is a print culture invention. Yes. Like the propositional truth, or at least its, it's political ascendancy is in the world, world of print culture. 
where you benefit from laying out an argument at length. Um, people respond to you themselves with arguments at length. Like he doesn't like there's there's no in a print in a print political print culture. There's no rule for like gesture or or flourish, right? Um, you know, I mean, just as a kind of this crude example, you know, uh, if I if I if my only response in a print culture is to write something myself, that really limits and changes who's going to be successful. Then today, where someone can write, you know, if if uh, I don't know, if uh, Pete Buttigieg wrote an eloquent treatise. And put what do we do? Put it on the Atlantic or something, or in a <laughs> or in a brighter book. I can, you know, I can quote tweet it with a snarky meme or whatever. I can I can recontextualize <laughs> it without myself having to be good at that kind of propositional truth telling. Many um, such people online. <laughs> many such cases. So what what I would argue is that what you have now is that you have a divergence between where those kind of propositional arguments can be successful, which I think is like within bureaucracies, which remain the print type organizations um vice like elected politics right exactly i i think i have exactly the same uh interpretation uh can bureaucracy survive this this change in technology well certainly yeah, yes in a word yes i don't know how they will change um you know one interesting thing is that you know the aspiration of a bureaucracy is essentially to function like a computer like a bureaucracy functioning at its best behaves like a computer and so one of the things that we see is that there's a kind of natural affinity between um, computing and bureaucracy. We can use computers to speed up bureaucracy, um, uh, bureaucracies of all kinds, and we've only really begun that process of modernization. So I think there's a lot of kind of like state capacity gains to be had simply from maximizing the use of information technology within bureaucracies. Um, For sure. And I so think that, something that's that's interesting. What happens next? That's the interesting question. What happens after that? Yeah, I, I think something that's interesting is that compute is now seeing some of the same problems with bureaucracy, right? You you have a lot of this uh, talk about AI alignment and AI interpretability. It's like sufficiently advanced, sufficiently advanced compute is uh, is kind of hard to tell and can can kind of go off on its own if on its own kind of uh, destructive spirals. In the same way that that incomprehensible bureaucracies can, right? And I think looking at that as a sort of looking at that as a sort of parallel is an underrated area of investigation. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that. I can ask the next question if you don't. Yeah, I'm not sure. I've thought much about that. It's really interesting. So I, I heard you speaking about the network state uh, with <laughs> uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez. Uh, as well. And The Network State is a book by Balaji Srinivasan and an idea that he talks about in the book, uh, where essentially you have these new, I, to me, it's like a new, basically, um, originator of legitimacy that comes from the internet. And that legitimacy builds communities. It builds, I mean, right now it's built like fandoms, basically, it's built internet communities, it's built niche political parties, right? I mean, some less niche than others now. You huh. see that in uh, Italy, of course. Uh, and then that kind of stems out and builds more and more things. Like from that legitimacy, you get morality, you get uh, political beliefs, you eventually get, I mean, you get a lot of startups as well. You get practical things, you get technology, right? And that that is a sort of rerouting of where legitimacy comes from. And, and that idea is the most important 
I think that that like that kind of root access, right? He talks about root mm-hmm. access a lot in terms of like Bitcoin, in terms of like it be having root access to your money, but also having root access to uh, to your kind of like social rules. I think is something that's very interesting about that idea. Uh, so yeah, so oh sorry, go ahead. What, what's the question? Yeah, yeah, I was just going to go go with that. So do you think that the network state is either advantage or I don't know. There's there's a bunch of ways I can I can uh, I can uh, phrase this, and this is a sort of lapse in my in my prep. I just have the general idea. I don't have the actual uh, question written down. Um, we'll start with this, okay? Network states underrated or overrated? Uh, that is a, so. Uh, that's a tough tough question to answer. Um, and, and I want you Silicon to Valley, yes no okay, it's, it's Silicon Valley. So I think question is where they're overrated in Silicon <laughs> Valley. They're underrated mm-hmm. in Washington D.C. That's hard, the hard to look at anything that isn't underrated and or sorry, overrated in social well, that's in right. Silicon Valley. So they're not going to. I mean, my, my big criticism of the network state is is actually the, not the network part, but the state part. Balaji mm, yes. is bundling. You know, he's sort of taking his his model of the network state is the nation state, but the network state isn't going to look anything like the nation state. There's no reason why all of these all of these elements of this kind of bundle of privileges and functions and institutions has to coexist in the way that Balaji sort of assumes that they will, and he assumes that they will because he he wants to kind of figure out how these network state fit, uh, fits within the Westphalian state system. But we're already basically in a post-Westphalian state system, and a world of network states would be even further away from that state system. So I think he needs to read more of like early modern, late medieval history and reconceptualize it in terms of um, overlaps of like the, like the feudal system where you have overlaps. You have a lot. You have a patchwork of overlaps of these kinds of institutions and particular outcomes are determined by uh, the degree of overlap. And and it's it's highly contextual. Right. There's a naive criticism, which is like, this is high, high variance. Why do you try to predict it? Right. And, and I think his response would be like, you know, this is just a good average to start with. Right. It's It could go either way, one way or another, but this is like a baseline. Right. And, and then there's like a, I think, more sophisticated criticism, which I think uh, you're giving is that this is actually not the baseline. Right. This is not the average. We can we can draw better parallels or we can draw better estimates of what the average is going to be. So uh, what is the average going to be? Right. I mean, I think so. So, I don't think there will be a um, a displacement of the state's system the way Balaji thinks it will. What I think you will have instead are patchworks of of degrees of sovereignty exercised by different kinds of authorities, um, and depending on where on resources, basically. So, for example. You know, we now live in a world like you know, for the most of the 20th century, uh, you know, from 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 the closing of the West with the kind of co- you know the conquest of the West by the railroad until the end of the 20th century, the United States was governed over by an increasingly strong federal government, uh, and a federal government with increasing and with rel- basically um, continuous powers across the entire nation. Right? If you fast forward 100, 200 years in the future. In a world of network states, maybe it looks more like um, the amount of authority the federal government has. Or it, it will it will still claim the, the same amount of authority. That's the other thing is Balaji sort of assumes that um, 
as resources expand and contract, that authority claims also have to expand and contract. Whereas the historical records are just far the opposite. That you know, people, you know, uh, states, political entities tend to continue to claim the maximum amount of authority they've ever attained. But the, what the challenge that becomes is actually when they're able to to realize that authority because it's resource intensive. So maybe in 150 years, the federal government, you know, depending on who the president is, uh, you know, doesn't venture into uh, or you know, doesn't send the FBI into California or Texas uh, or Florida, depending on the political circumstances. But, you know, but Virginia is like completely, you know, carte blanche. Um you know, maybe within Texas, maybe uh, Dallas and Austin have different uh, authorities, uh, different um, levels of sovereignty, as it were. Um, what does this mean for the kind of average person on the ground? I mean, I think that there's a way of, again, this is just feudalism. This is this is just a kind of neo-feudal political structure. Um, people forget that feudalism wasn't just about uh, lords and vassals. It was also about... Uh, free towns and where the free towns were and the relationship between, you know, the emperor and kings and local dukes and those free cities and the burghers of those free cities. So that kind of patchwork complexities, I think, is closer to the baseline. Right. So you mentioned earlier public virtue. Uh, what do you think is public virtue? I'm not sure what is meant by public virtue, but but virtue yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, well, there's the virtues of, so there are virtue. I would put it this way: public virtues are the virtues that are required in a particular political regime of its citizens or of the participants in that regime for it to sustain itself. Right. So, for example, um, the virtues that you need to be a successful courtier in an absolute monarchy are very different from the virtues that are needed for of the citizens of a small republic. So virtues are basically skills. They are moral and social skills. I think that's a good way to define them. I'll try asking this question again. What is a moral skill? <laughs> I mean, a moral skill is the um, is an internalized and practically realized set of dispositions connecting your actions and uh your achievement of, of particular ends and, and your belief that those ends are good ends to achieve. And, you know, in a more, as it develops an understanding the connection between um, those ends and an even broader kind of social or spiritual outcome. So like, you know, question? being a, being a, being a truthful person, for example, being honest, is it simply about, uh, you know, a person who it's not, it's not just a percentage of the percentage of time you tell the truth. Right, it is also a sense of your desire. Like you, you could be someone who tells the truth all the time, because you had a, you know, very very strong uh, external constraint that forced you to do so. Like for example, if you were walking around with um, a a uh, body cam all the time, and you knew there was a live feed of this body cam, then you would probably be a very honest person. But you wouldn't necessarily have that would be imposed upon you by some kind of external constraint. Uh, and if that constraint were removed, you wouldn't necessarily display the moral skill of honesty, right? So honesty is something more than that. It also involves an understanding of what it means for you to be an honest person, why it is good, uh, it, socially, spiritually, existentially, whatever, to be an honest person, maybe practices that help you continue to be an honest person. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm building this is all this is all based on kind of McIntyre's theory of virtues, is virtue ethics, which you can re- find in After Virtue. Yes, uh, very very good book. Uh, what is a question that you would like someone to ask you on a podcast? Oh, I don't, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough, that's a rather recursive or rather reflexive question to be asked on a podcast. I'll have to think about that one some more. Maybe I'll text it to you and I think of it. <laughs> for sure. Uh, for my audience, this is, this is, this is part one of two and we plan for two to be very, very long. Uh what what is actually what is a topic that you you would like to uh discuss that is that you think is under discussed by you specifically by me I don't know I I discuss a lot of things but not not shy um I mean I propose in my compact piece that we we pursue a program of technological development for of conservative technological development which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron and I think that, that that question of like what technologies that we can build might be conducive to human flourishing is, I think, a, a really important one that very few people are addressing on those terms. Right. So you, you think that a more more focus on technology, that, w- that would be a good thing? Well, the... What does it mean by more focus? I think, I think more, a more reflective focus on technology would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think we're very focused on technologies in a very unreflective way. Okay. Yes. You know, but we're, we, case, we want to sort of, we just, we just want to say, you know, it's, it's really this process of idolatry, right? We view technologies as something that are outside of ourselves, not something that emerge out of our society and out of our choices. Um, and, and, and both, you know, boosters and detractors of technology have their own reasons to, uh, to idolize technology in this way and i think that's really bad right sarcasm overrated or underrated overrated overrated okay that's 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 very interesting maybe i'll get you and yarvin on this on the show <laughs> at the same time um okay the, i wasn't ex- expecting to expand on this one but why is it overrated okay well i thought i thought the, I thought the deal was you just asked it and i i would uh i would I would nomically give you a one-word answer without being pushed, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you anyways. I mean, I think sarcasm is a very <laughs> sarcasm is difficult to convey on the internet, right? And so, uh, if we are living in an internet era, then we need forms of rhetoric that match that era, and I think sarcasm isn't a particularly suited form. Like, what like what what is sarcasm good for today? That's. That's so interesting because I think many people regard it as like particularly good in the internet era, right? That that it's it's particularly good at these kind of like pseudo oral culture interactions where you just want to make fun of someone, and maybe that's not good, right? Maybe that's not like a very kind of uh, ethical thing to do or a very productive thing to do, but it kind of works to accomplish that goal, right? Don't you think? I don't know. I, I I'm trying to think back in my my experiences on or off the internet of a situation where where <clears throat> sarcasm. Uh, I mean, I don't think sarcasm works the same way. Like, I mean, you say sarcasm is good on the internet, and I do think it serves a certain function. But I'm just not sure it's a good function. Which is the main function of sarcasm on the internet seems to be to find people who don't get it, and then to uh, a stat, you know, helps cement the in group versus the out group, 
based right, on I agree. who can detect the underlying sarcasm of you know a prima facie either offensive or nonsensical post and you know that's not that's not nothing but i just don't think it's you know sarcasm was also very popular in the late tele in the late uh broadcast era right the the 90s and 2000s and i don't know i just found that that like when i think when i reflect back, having lived through that area when i reflect back on it it just seems like the, the humor was just so self-indulgent that's so this is a problem with sarcasm right is it is it's at, it's always at least a second or third layer of rhetoric right it's rhetoric about rhetoric and i think we live in an era of too much talking already we need more building we need more doing and i don't think sarcasm helps us with that okay uh, how much more time do you have it's probably a good time to call it for the uh for the fir- part one yeah do you want to and do you want to answer the last question of the show sure uh, what is something that's too much order and something that's too much chaos uh, that we haven't talked about so far? Too much order is in there's like too much order in this uh, f- sphere, so to speak. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, so too much order is social media. We need much more disordered, disorderly, uh, chaotic social media than, um, especially in the last few four years, has been a huge clampdown on the orderliness of social media and it's made it super boring. Um, and where do we have too much disorder? Um, our universities, we need much more, uh, orderly, much more disciplined, much more, uh, we need to strengthen disciplines in the university. We need to restrict curricula. We need to restrict, uh, courses of study. Yeah, I could go on, but our universities are not, are not they are not real universities anymore because they are so disordered yeah catholic university board if you're listening yes that's right come to catholic university we'll set you right yeah well thanks for thanks for uh coming on and we will have uh we will have part two eventually and that will be wonderful great thank you so much brian that was my episode with john Escanis. as i said at the beginning of the show if you liked it the best thing you can do is share let a person know and Hopefully, if you know someone who has the same interests, who has the same habits as you, then that person will be someone who will benefit a lot from listening to the podcast too. As I said up top, we'll be having a regular episode next Monday, so also make sure to subscribe if you want to catch that. See you next Monday.